Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 36. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at two very different works for orchestra. The Coriolan Overture, Opus 62, composed in 1807, and Wellington's Victory, sometimes called the Battle of Victoria, and often referred to simply as the Battle Symphony, composed six years later in 1813. The Coriolan Overture was composed as a response to Heinrich Joseph von Collins' play based on dramatic events in the life of 5th century BCE General Gaius Marcius, later given the honorable name of Coriolanus. His story is documented by Plutarch as well as other Roman historians, although some modern historians are not completely convinced that such a man actually existed and that the story passed down to us by Plutarch and others and immortalized in Shakespeare's tragedy before serving as the subject for Collins' play might be based on a composite of various Roman generals. We'll say more about Colin and his play a little later, but let's first briefly consider Beethoven's relationship to Shakespeare not least because some Beethoven scholars consider the Coriolan Overture to be based more on Shakespeare's version of the story than Collins. We know that Beethoven greatly admired Shakespeare. He was exposed to Shakespeare's plays while still living in Bonn and read at least some of his works in translation. As David Roberts points out in his extremely valuable 2019 essay, Beethoven and Shakespeare, Ghosts and Heroes, Beethoven's journal, maintained from 1812 through 1818, includes quotations from the Bard. And, writing a little earlier in 1809, the Baron de Tremont tells of conversations taking place after one of Beethoven's improvisations for a private gathering, stating, Then we would talk philosophy, religion, politics, and especially of Shakespeare, his idol. Although it must be admitted that de Tremont's later remarks call somewhat into question the sophistication of Beethoven's comments in reference to his idol. Beethoven's early biographer, Thayer, also reports a conversation between Beethoven and his friend Amenda, one which I referenced in episode 12 in regard to the slow movement from the string quartet in F major from opus 18, where Amenda comments that the movement pictured to him the parting of two lovers, to which Beethoven responded, Good, I thought of the scene in the burial vault in Romeo and Juliet. So while it might be an exaggeration to say that Beethoven was well-versed in Shakespeare, he was certainly very interested in him, even from his younger days, and appreciated his genius. Still, it will come as no surprise that a number of writers seem anxious to make the connections between Beethoven and Shakespeare even more powerful, one of whom was the great romantic author and critic E.T.A. Hoffmann. In Lawrence Kramer's discussion of Hoffmann's views concerning Beethoven, in Kramer's musical quarterly article, the strange case of Beethoven's Coriolan, he quotes Hoffman's comment regarding the overture that one fully believes that the world of spirits ominously announced by subterranean thunder will draw closer in the play, that Hamlet's troubled shadow will steal across the stage, 
or that the terrible sisters will drag Macbeth down into Orcus. Kramer then goes further, suggesting that the subterranean thunder to which Hoffman refers can most plausibly be located in the opening passage of the overture, which three times sounds a long, slow, snarling string octave and follows it with a brief outburst for full orchestra, each time with greater dissonance. There is much more to Kramer's essay, of course, on Beethoven's Shakespeare connections, and I quote that portion here only as an example of the sort of links between Beethoven and Shakespeare which historians and artists of many sorts have so zealously made over the years. As far as the opening bars of the overture are concerned, we'll get back to those shortly. But first, let's return to the Collins version of the Coriolanus story, which prompted Beethoven's overture in 1807, although there is not much evidence that Beethoven's work was ever performed in connection with the performance of the play. Collins' version of the story does parallel Shakespeare's in many respects, even though it may lack some of the latter's more dramatic qualities. Like Shakespeare's, it deals only with the final part of the hero's career, with little reference to the political maneuvering that led up to that point. We immediately encounter an angry Coriolanus. He is a great general who has more than once saved Rome due to his bravery and military prowess, and played a role in the governing of the city as well. But now he finds himself marked as an enemy of the people, primarily because he does not favor the widespread distribution of food brought in in response to a local famine. But such concerns are put on hold when the Romans' long-standing enemies, the Volsians, attack Rome, and Gaius Martius is chosen as one of the generals to defend the city. A series of battles proved to be indecisive, but Martius finally prevails and is honored with the name Coriolanus for having defeated the Corioli forces, who are allied with the Volsians. The Volsians remain a threat, but the scene now shifts to the politics within the city. Some herald Coriolanus for his bravery. Some disparage him for his elitist inclinations and obvious distaste for the common people. Coriolanus is voted in to be consul, but his enemies rouse the population against him, and soon the mob attempts to seize him and kill him. Coriolanus departs from Rome and, disgusted with the treatment he has experienced at the hands of the Romans, now joins with the Volsians who are planning another attack. I've left out much of the plot here, in both Shakespeare's and Collins' version, but the most important question for our purposes is, how much of all of this is reflected in Beethoven's overture? We know that the younger Beethoven had expressed some disdain for what he considered overly literal examples of programmatic writing. But we also know from the Romeo and Juliet reference I mentioned earlier that Beethoven made no strict rule for himself. After all, the overtures Beethoven had composed in connection with his opera Fidelio, or Leonora as it was originally named, could also be thought of as narrating a story in some respects. We'll take up those overtures in a future episode when we talk about Beethoven's opera-related struggles even though those struggles had been in progress for a while by 1807. 
But in regard to the Coriolan Overture, since there does seem to be general agreement that this work is, at least to some respect, programmatic and illustrative of the drama, it's reasonable to suggest that the introduction expresses our hero's grim determination to settle the score with the Romans who rejected his leadership. But while the introduction certainly exudes the sort of tension you would expect from the preparation for battle in which our hero intends to take revenge on the Romans, it does much more than that. The movement is in C minor, common time, and begins Allegro con brio. The opening measures begin fortissimo, with, as Kramer suggested earlier, a long-held tonic note in octaves in the strings, a whole note tied to a second whole note. Following the sustained tonic note, we hear a staccato chord, a subdominant chord actually, on the downbeat of the third measure, the entire orchestra contributing, with three beats of silence following. This is, as Jeremy Yutkin points out in his book, From Silence to Sound, Beethoven's Beginnings, a gesture whose potency continues throughout the work. After the two-measure sustained tonic note is repeated, we hear a different chord, the full diminished leading tone chord in the key. Then the sustained tonic note is heard for the third time, followed this time by a different diminished seventh chord, this time one that leads to the dominant chord, although not directly. We then hear a complete measure of silence. Stafford aptly describes it as a violent silence to allow the tension chord to make its effect. And then we hear a tonic chord in second inversion, the so-called 6-4 chord, typical right before an emphatic cadence and usually resolving to a dominant chord, which it does here a measure later. So the opening 14 measures are certainly repetitive, but not static, at least not harmonically. And Beethoven has very effectively laid the groundwork for a very dramatic movement. This opening of the overture has been singled out not just by Yudkin, but by a remarkable number of other commentators and musicians. Kramer quotes Wagner as stating that the opening bars present us immediately with the figure of the man himself, enormous force, untamable sense of self, and passionate defiance express themselves as fury, hatred, vengeance, and annihilation-seeking spirit. Not everyone will embrace Wagner's somewhat overheated rhetoric here, but I think it's clear to everyone that the movement is tension-filled right from the beginning, and that tension is maintained or even increased by what we encounter next. The first theme immediately following the introduction is not a conventional theme. It consists primarily of a repeated ostinato pattern in first violins and violas played softly against downbeat reiterations of the tonic note. Its structure is fairly simple. It begins on the tonic note in C minor, skips up a third, and then moves down by step back to the tonic, all in eighth notes in the first half of the measure. It then leaps up to the dominant on a quarter note in the second half, in a combination of slurs and staccatos. 
Harmonically, this implies a straightforward alternation of tonic and dominant chords, but things soon become a little more complicated. After two bars, the pattern changes slightly. In the second half of the measure, the pattern shifts upward, now including a leap to a dissonant note, a tritone, although it immediately returns to the dominant note. The pattern changes again in measure four, now beginning on the fifth of the scale in the first half of the measure, and in the second, leaping up another dissonant tritone. Harmonically, it's still probably heard as an alternation between tonic and dominant chords, but the dissonant leaps do hint at a degree of tension and perhaps a little mystery. After these four bars, Beethoven introduces a new syncopated motive, the upper strings playing off a short-long, short-long pattern with across-the-bar ties, and lower strings interlocking very effectively against those rhythms by repeating a forceful pattern of dotted quarters followed by eighth notes against it. Both levels gradually descend by step, as do the high woodwinds who fill in with more sustained lines above the strings. We quickly crescendo to a dominant chord, but then suddenly stop. We barely have time to catch our breath when the whole pattern starts up again, this time surprisingly on B-flat minor, a key relationship we probably don't expect at this point. This time, we come to an abrupt stop on a dominant seventh chord, inverted in F minor. Here, Beethoven does not start over again, at least not in the same way. We're in F minor at this point, and after another suspense-filled measure of silence, he quietly restarts those interlocking rhythmic patterns I referred to earlier in connection with the descending lines up and down the strings and woodwinds. The result is not quite the same as before, but it's close, at least until we encounter a new section presented fortissimo, which really does sound like a proper transition section, introduced by repeated sixteenth notes in violins and double-stop violas and sustained chords in the woodwinds, horns, and trumpets. Again, the prevailing melodic motion here is descending with the prominent bass line, cellos, basses, and bassoons, moving in fits and starts down the scale to arrive at F-sharp. At that point, we hear, against Sando downbeats and a bass line that continues to descend gradually, a return of our ostinato motive, at least the first four notes of it, which is repeated again and again above the descending bass line. What comes next is a new, much more lyrical theme in E-flat major, the relative major. This represents a sharp contrast in mood, 
After all, the first subject is more of an ostinato pattern, which is shifted around and varied, than a more conventional, sustained first subject or first theme. And the reason behind this sharp contrast is generally assumed to relate to the program in play here. The mother of Coriolanus, along with his wife and another woman, go to him and plead that he dismiss his bitterness and stay his hand, and not wreak destruction on his own country. The contrast between the two themes makes perfect sense in that context. But it also makes perfect sense just considering the fact that the work is, like so many overtures, in a sort of sonata form. Of course, most overtures to this date are overtures to something, usually an opera or some other type of dramatic work. In this case, there doesn't seem to be strong evidence that Beethoven's overture was ever performed as incidental music to Collins' play, however much it was inspired by that play. That being the case, it really has to be considered a standalone concert overture quite possibly the first of its type. So let's take a closer look at the second theme, intended to embody the pleading of our hero's mother. Moving generally in longer note values, it's introduced by a descent of a dominant seventh chord in the new key. The theme proper starts on the third of the new scale, moves up to its upper neighbor, and then descends down an arpeggio of its own, before leaping up an octave to the fifth of the scale where a variant of the same pattern is reproduced. Here is the first eight-measure appearance of the new theme, the first four bars played softly by first violins against arpeggios in the violas and a sustained tonic note in the horns, and then handed to the seconds, doubled by first clarinet an octave higher for the next four measures, while the firsts engage in a subtly syncopated figure as we begin to crescendo. But as the theme continues, with the full woodwinds taking over and the rhythmic accompaniment getting busier, we encounter a rather abrupt fortissimo interruption and a modulation to F minor, and the serene nature of the theme is called into question. Are the mother's pleadings falling on deaf ears? Is Coriolanus reacting harshly? Actually, it makes little sense to expect a blow-by-blow -blow narration of the storyline here. Even if Beethoven is guided in general by the dramatic curve of Collins' play, that does not mean we're going to hear a literal note-by-note -note or measure-by-measure -measure expression of it. Beethoven here is extending the theme in a manner that evokes, at least for the moment, a hint of dramatic intensity. And it's very much the sort of thing he might do at this point for purely musical reasons, with no connection to an external narrative at all. After six bars in the new key, we repeat the modulatory process, this time ending in G minor. I said earlier that overtures of this type were often laid out in something like a sonata form. And so far, we've had two contrasting themes in suitably contrasting keys. Are we then going to have a third section in the exposition that could be reasonably identified as a closing section? We'll see. 
Beethoven's form here is much too continuous for such simple divisions to be easily recognized. After the second theme melody plays out in G minor, we encounter a more thinly textured section demonstrating the same short, interlocking motives we heard first in the transition to E-flat major. And then, as we crescendo from pianissimo to fortissimo, we encounter a new two-bar phrase, heard from the bottom of the texture to the top in different versions. This pattern, played in pulsating sixteenth notes by the strings and quarter notes by everyone else, is soon shifted down a fifth, with the lower strings dropping down and the violins actually moving up a fourth, and we eventually leave G minor behind. Then another new idea is introduced. The texture is a little thinner here, at least for a while, but the rhythmic intensity remains high, as we hear a new three-note motive in a restless C minor over a C pedal, with a sforzando accent on the second note. Soon the C in the pedal starts to drop down by half-steps, and we finally hear something like a structural cadence on G. Does all this perhaps constitute a closing section, perhaps even followed by a codetta? Possibly, but everything is so fluid here that labels are not terribly meaningful. Nevertheless, we do seem to be entering something of a new section in G minor built around a new thematic idea. The concept isn't new, it's really another repeated ostinato pattern with interlocking motives above it. But it's a somewhat new repeated ostinato pattern, all in eighth notes this time. Here is a simplified and tempo-reduced example. On one level, these are just arpeggiations of tonic and dominant seventh chords in the lower strings, but they're actually a little more complicated than that, and the interlocking violin part above provides a hint of dissonance above the implied chord that gives it an unusual color. The result is almost mesmerizing. And then, a couple of bars later, the pattern changes to a pair of ascending arpeggios, which switch positions, and with the lowest note descending as the harmony fluctuates. More such changes are in store, as Beethoven carries the pattern on and on with a persistence reminiscent of later 20th century film scores. 
Up to tempo, you could easily imagine a similar repeated ostinato figure in Bernard Herrmann's score to Hitchcock's North by Northwest. Here's the beginning of the section featuring those repeated ostinato patterns. Insofar as this is functioning like a development section, we're obviously starting out with an emphasis on the first theme, although without precisely duplicating it. Almost immediately, the repeated pattern is punctuated by forte G minor cadences from the rest of the orchestra. And after just four bars of the pattern, we hear superimposed against it a descending line in half notes. Not the first time we've heard a line like this moving against the interlocking patterns above. This line doubles the lowest note of the ostinato pattern as it descends by step. And soon afterwards, the woodwinds join in with it a couple of octaves higher. After several measures of this, we come to a major close on the G minor tonic chord, which is assertively repeated again and again. So what does this repeated G minor cadence signal? A new section? Perhaps the development of the second theme? Not yet. Instead, more ostinato patterns in the low strings against short countermotives in first violins and woodwinds, similar to what we've heard before, this time with the key leaning back toward F minor. We're back to piano now, and once again we begin to crescendo slowly, but only briefly. Soon we return to piano and the slower moving countermelody is again heard against the ostinato, first ascending in a somewhat meandering pattern of whole notes and then descending in half notes. But we quickly recrescendo, this time to fortissimo, with even the double basses doubling the ostinato pattern. Here is part of that section. After four bars at fortissimo, we hear a return of the introduction, the opening measures, with their sustained octaves on tonic, which is F minor for the time being, followed by the same staccato quarter note. It's a shortened version of the introduction, but it still makes use of dramatic silences. This gives way to a passage based on the original transition passage in the exposition.
It's quite a build-up, and since those last measures reiterate an inverted dominant chord in the key of C minor, it seems likely that it's a build-up to the recapitulation. Here's what happens. Two things happen, both somewhat unexpected. First of all, we turn out to be in C major rather than C minor. That's not a total shock, of course, because not every major key second theme in every sonata form comes back in a minor key. Besides, as the theme unfolds, it does visit C minor for a while, as you heard at the end of my excerpt. The other, probably more surprising thing, is that it's not the first subject or theme, that ostinato pattern, that is presented. It's the second lyrical theme representing the mother's entreaties. Does that mean that the mother's pleading has indeed saved the day? Or as one commentator suggested, the triumph of the feminine over the masculine? Or could it simply be that Beethoven had focused so much on ostinato patterns in the development section, even though they were not always identical to the first subject, that he felt that contrast was needed at this point? And speaking of his emphasis on the ostinato patterns, does that somehow imply that in the development section, Coriolanus was basically arguing with himself about whether to attack his own country? After all, we hear almost nothing from the mother's perspective in the development section. Or was it simply the case that the ostinato patterns of the first theme were much more conducive to being developed in a tension-filled atmosphere, to be broken into motives and then have those motives be transformed in various ways, than the more lyrical, serene, and rather less dramatic second theme? It's impossible to say exactly what was in Beethoven's mind here because he didn't tell us. But my guess is it's the latter. The ostinato type motives worked very well for a development section in which the composer wanted to keep the intensity level high, although he also kept the suspense level high by periodically returning to the very quiet version of the ostinato. In other words, the equation was based on musical logic rather than fidelity to a literary idea. Now that we're in the midst of the recapitulation, do we ever encounter the first subject again in its original key of C minor? Yes, after the second theme is played out, we encounter a section somewhat like the one I referred to earlier as a possible closing section. It does modulate around a bit, finding itself first in G minor for a while and then F minor, but in the end makes it back to C minor to reintroduce our first subject, or more precisely, one of the early variants of it. <laughs> 
But it stops, hovering in mid-air for almost two measures of silence and two measures of quiet horn octaves, at the end of which we hear... It's certainly a wistful return of the mother's pleading melody. It might be thought of as the victory of the feminine over the masculine, but it actually seems rather tentative and uncertain, before giving way to another passage similar to earlier transition passages that crescendoed up to great climaxes. And the climax it leads to here is a return of the introduction, a more complete version of that introduction this time, back in the original tonic key. But it diminuendos away rather quickly, and we hear a brief, haunting reference to the original ostinato-based first theme, first in the original rhythm and then stretched out, first into triplets and then longer note values. In Colin's version of the story, Coriolanus ultimately decides not to join in on the attack against Rome and commits suicide. In this case, there is widespread agreement that Beethoven's conclusion is programmatically inspired. There is some disagreement whether the final pianissimo pizzicatos represents the hero's final heartbeats or simply the quiet realization that there is no other way out for him. Shakespeare's version is more violent. Coriolanus goads his enemies into killing him. Some scholars point to an earlier draft of the final measures of Beethoven's piece, which seem to suggest the more violent actions of Shakespeare's version. But in the end, he obviously chose to follow Collins. This is a dramatic and fascinating work, 
a concert overture which obviously owes a programmatic debt to Collins' play. The work stands alone at this point in Beethoven's development, although others similar to it would eventually follow. We'll move on now to an unusual work, Beethoven's Wellington's Victory, Opus 91, sometimes referred to as the Battle of Victoria, or simply the Battle Symphony. He composed it in 1813, six years after the Coriolanus Overture. But really, the work could have been composed years earlier in terms of the style that Beethoven appropriated for it. It turned out to be one of Beethoven's most popular works, which was welcome in a period where Beethoven appeared to be seeking broader popularity, in part perhaps to assuage his wounded ego after still more failed romantic endeavors, and in part in response to a serious decline in his income brought about by the depreciation of the Austrian currency as a result of the war and the full or partial loss of three of his promised annuities from his wealthy patrons. Arguably, the story behind this work is more interesting than the work itself, at least to post-19th century audiences. Of course, battle symphonies were by no means unheard of before Beethoven, or after for that matter, the tradition extends back to the Renaissance, and many other composers have tried their hands at the genre over the years. For this particular work, the story begins with Johann Nepomuk Melzel, an inventor of several clever machines, as well as a musician, who approached Beethoven with the idea that he compose a piece for an elaborate mechanical organ of his called the Panharmonicum which featured imitations of strings, brass, winds, and percussion, all powered by a bellows. This was intended to be an elaborate showpiece representing the Battle of Victoria, the victory of a coalition of forces under Arthur Wellesley, later the Duke of Wellington, over King Joseph Napoleon, the nominal leader of the French forces near Victoria, Spain, in 1812. Melzell and Beethoven apparently agreed that the piece would employ the melody Rule Britannia to represent the British side and Marlborough to represent the French, a tune better known as For He's a Jolly Good Fellow. Beethoven had, in his early years, naturally composed variations on well-known melodies of the period, because, frankly, they would probably be expected to sell better than variations on unknown themes or themes Beethoven composed himself. Examples of this include variations on familiar tunes from Mozart operas and, as recently as 1803, keyboard variations on God Save the King and Rule Britannia. So, composing for sale was hardly a new concept for Beethoven before or even after the composition of the Battle Symphony. And although Beethoven was very well established at this point, with a reputation as a very original artist, he would still take on seemingly mundane musical tasks from time to time, sometimes to help his cash flow, and other times perhaps just to have a relaxing and non-taxing musical activity to indulge in while he summoned his creative juices before the next more ambitious project. In the period from 1810 through 1820, for example, Beethoven undertook settings of Irish, Scottish, and British folk songs, among others, on assignment from a publisher. 
The results are sometimes less remarkable than one might expect, but apparently it was a task Beethoven welcomed on some level. So now, Beethoven, in 1812, at least initially friendly with Maelzel and interested in his inventions, especially the timekeeping device that later developed into the metronome, was ready to listen. And he appears to have responded to Maelzel's request for a new piece for his new machine with some enthusiasm. It will not surprise anyone to learn that Beethoven later had a falling out with the inventor about who owned the rights to the piece once completed, and Beethoven later hinted that he had actually first conceived of the idea on his own, a very dubious proposition. Nevertheless, Beethoven proceeded with his part of the bargain, in a rather hurried fashion, it must be admitted, and came up with a piece for an orchestra so large that Maelzel's machine was not up to the task of rendering it. So Beethoven proceeded to come up with a new version, quite possibly with Maelzel's assistance, while he went ahead and prepared a conventional score of the work for a live performance, now divided into two distinct movements, the battle itself and the victory symphony celebrating the battle. It was a great success, wildly applauded at each performance. We'll look first at the highly programmatic first movement, complete with trumpet calls and cannon fire explosions written right into the score. These were played by a battery of specially designed percussion instruments in Beethoven's time. Modern recorded performances generally employ more realistic sound effects, but these explosive sounds can dominate to such an extent that the music itself is nearly obliterated at times. The first movement begins with the sound of a distant field drum cadence which crescendos as the English army, or rather the coalition army, draws nearer. Soon we hear a rather simple trumpet call to signal the troops. We'll pick it up as the army draws nearer. We then hear, in E-flat major and 2-4 time, an introductory military band version of Rule Britannia, which leads to a full-scale version of the melody. We'll pick it up halfway through the initial version. Now the French forces begin to approach, with their own field drum cadence, this one in 6-8 rather than duplometer, and their own fanfare motive, leading to their own theme song, Marlborough, in C major, also in 6-8.
After dueling trumpet calls, the battle begins, common time and marked allegro and fortissimo. The large orchestra, including multiple trumpets and trombones, as well as piccolo, generating quite a bit of sound, even aside from the explosions clearly marked in the score. Musically speaking, the battle is not terribly interesting. Beethoven relies in the first section, in B major, mostly on incomplete tonic triads, diminished chords, and minor chords, along with offbeat accents, with pulsating triplets in second violins and violas, with a repeated melodic figure, which begins in the first violins with a large ascending leap, often two octaves, in quarter notes, followed by a series of plummeting sixteenth notes. Here are the opening bars of the first section. The pace picks up as we switch keys to C major at the end of a long descending line in the bass and move to 3-4 time and meno allegro. Here, trumpet call motives figure prominently across the orchestra, a cavalry charge perhaps. Although the explosions drop out briefly, they soon return. The confident swagger of C major soon falters, however, and the key plunges down by one step and then another as diminished seventh chords enter the sonic landscape once again. The action and explosions remain on a near-frantic level for some time, until we shift gears again, back to a flat in cut time, marked allegro a sigh as the French drummers make their presence felt. The key moves up by step again and again as short, triplet-based motives are introduced, and the piccolo and high woodwinds began to figure more prominently. The intensity increases still more at the next presto section, but although a few new melodic elements are added, there's really not a great deal that is new here, so we'll only hear a little of it. One more tempo change awaits us, a shift to Andante and 6-8, as we experience the conclusion of the battle and its aftermath. The odd explosion still makes itself heard, 
But at this point, we have quieted to piano back in 6-8 time, and we hear the introduction of a strangely elegiac little tune, its relationship to the Marlboro melody, making it obvious who lost this battle, as the cannon fire finally fades away. Since this movement is so blatantly programmatic and possessed of more than its share of clichés, commentators have, understandably, not taken it too seriously. The next movement, on the other hand, labeled the Victory Symphony, has earned at least a modicum of respect. As we hear the opening measures, however, it quickly becomes clear that we're by no means done with military bluster. The eight-measure opening entrada in D major, 4-4 time, and marked Allegro ma non troppo, features more trumpet call motives elaborated on by the string section. This gives way to a spirited march, allegro con brio, in cut time, abounding in dotted note rhythms, not unlike some of the marches composed by the much younger Beethoven. Here's the first part of it. After the sprightly march comes to a rousing close, we hear a highly contrasting second theme in the woodwinds, in 3-4, marked Andante Grazioso and Dolce, with gentle pizzicato accompaniment from the strings. It's based on God Save the King, with what is initially a traditional harmonization. But it is gently interrupted with what appears to be a key change and then, rather dramatically, abandoned altogether in favor of a return to the boisterous march.
But the march, too, is interrupted by another highly contrasting passage. It's another version of God Save the King, marked as Tempo Diminuetto and Moderato. The theme is presented piano in the woodwinds and in alternate measures fortissimo by the whole orchestra, including timpani rolls. Here's the end of the rousing march going into the first part of this new version of God Save. But the new section does not end as we expect it to. In a masterful touch, one of the most masterful in the entire work, Beethoven takes the second measure of the theme, ornaments it with a trill, and extends it, very quietly, from the violins to the woodwinds, with answering phrases based on a rustic horn-call motive. From that point, Beethoven moves quietly into a very clever, almost mercurial fugue in 3-8 time, starting with staccato eighth notes, but soon moving to sixteenths. It starts in D major, but eventually introduces some quite remarkable modulations. The fugue subject seems new at first, but soon starts taking on the identity of God Save the King and peaks with a rousing, if rhythmically distorted, version of that theme in fortissimo block chords. Here is the first part of the fugue. The massive sonorities subside briefly and a more delicate texture is introduced only to crescendo up to a second powerful climax. Beethoven quiets the music a final time 
only to prepare us for one last explosion as the movement comes to an end with the final echoes of trumpet calls ringing in our ears. Is this a work of great craft or subtlety? Of course not, nor was it intended to be. It was designed to overwhelm the listener with its sonority and rhythmic energy, and it does its job. Besides, there is some subtlety in the last half of the second movement, particularly the way in which the God Save theme is incorporated into the fugal flow, and the way in which the rhythmic energy is discharged and then recaptured. So the work is clearly not without some merit. Beethoven himself was never in doubt about what the piece represented, but as Swafford has pointed out, that did not prevent him from urging multiple performances and the publication of the piece. The state of his pocketbook at that stage probably had a great deal to do with his views on the subject. There were some other composers who expressed some disappointment in Beethoven for having stooped so low to gain public approval. Beethoven's response to such naysaying is on record, and it wasn't particularly polite. For our next episode, we'll turn to a perhaps undervalued choral work, Beethoven's Mass in C Major, Opus 86, composed in 1807.